Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now, here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back. And- Thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Sandra Jane, PhD, Senior Vice President of Market Strategy and Chief Research Officer at Trillion Health. Sandra, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Matt. So what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So Sandra, the floor is yours. Thanks. Well, so I'm a health economist by training, and um, I really think of myself really as a health services researcher. And so what that means is it's almost like I'm the academic in industry that's really trying to connect dots between how do we think about the information that our industry is using to make decisions. And so a lot of my work really stems from the origin of um, coming from academia of How do we study questions? What are the different data sources out there to help contextualize the changing healthcare environment and what and to do that in a way that's more real time? Because, as you know, a lot of academic research in the traditional sense, you know, it takes a long time. There tends to be a big lag of, you know, two years. And so typically be reading a study that's based off of data that isn't even as relevant for what's happening in real time. And that became even more true during the pandemic. So um, I really like to think about answering important questions, but more than that, thinking about where is the puck headed and what are, how do we connect dots between things we're seeing across sectors, whether that's the provider world, payer world, the pharma world, or policy and, and everything in between. You know, it's a very interesting intersection. Can, can, as you're saying, even though you're coming up, coming up from the economic perspective, you're still trying to get real-time analysis and see where the industry is going, which arguably is reflective of what healthcare as a whole is trying to do. Um, but I guess before we start unpacking that a little bit more, I'm, I always get curious, what got you into healthcare in the first place? I think like most people, uh, I came into healthcare with some kind of personal you know, story or touch point. And the short story is, you know, as a child, I was around a lot of family members, you know, older grandparents on both sides that struggled with a lot of different chronic conditions. But as a child, what was interesting to me was it was very apparent that how they were managing their chronic conditions was also a function of the level of information that they had. And so as a lover of science early on as a, as a child, you know, I would read things about, oh, you can manage type 2 diabetes, right, if you do A, B, and C. And there are certain things about the Indian culture in terms of food and diet and nutrition that influenced how my grandparents would manage their conditions. And it got me thinking, wow, if they, how can I help them make better decisions or change their behaviors rather? Uh, And that really kind of put me on this path towards how do patients, and then eventually that that question evolved to providers and, and others, really make decisions that ultimately influence their health. And it kind of started with that early, you know, at-home origin, which then took me on an interesting journey of, okay, well then how do hospital leaders make decisions and what information do people need or have access to, but then ultimately informs what they do. And so kind of back to where we started without boring you with all the things I've done, you know, in between, it's really, that's really what my mission is, right? Is how 
what is the information that different stakeholders need that is essential to making you know effective and informed decisions? So with that perspective and that background, what piece of the healthcare industry are you focused on right now? Oh, that's a that's a tricky one because I would say one of my observations is that we typically as an industry have a tendency to think and work in silos, right? So even from a researcher's perspective, right? And even academia, I was guilty of this, right? We typically have one or two topic areas where we go really deep as a domain expert, right? You're either looking at Medicaid policy or you've got the expert in value-based care, right? Or you're looking at something very niche. I'm typically someone who um, likes to have a lot of breadth um, with you know depth in a handful of areas. And so generally I think about the intersection of the organization financing and delivery of healthcare services. Um, more, most recently where I'm spending a lot of my time is to apply that um, framework of how behaviors are changing as a result of the pandemic, um, whether that's through things like telehealth, changes in policies during the um, during the pandemic, uh, things like behavioral health. Um, but that's really the microcosm of the central question of how are behaviors at the patient or provider level changing or how have they changed is really kind of a, a macro question I'm spending a lot of time in kind of recent months. Yeah, so kind of thinking about that, I think as you're saying, it, it's helpful to break down the silos and think about you know, the industry or really just kind of a lot of these issues that impact healthcare holistically. You know, I know you just mentioned behavioral health, which I think historically has been given an extreme silo way off to the side. You know, I guess, is that an accurate picture of, you know, if we had to draw a line somewhere like how behavioral health was treated pre-pandemic or kind of, you know, how would you describe the behavioral health landscape looking back a couple of years at this point? I first started studying behavioral health as a researcher actually back in 2015. And in some of that work, which ultimately got published in, in journals like Health Affairs, it was really clear to your point that behavioral health was very siloed, right? The way that we were measuring it, the way that we would talk about it from a cost or prevalence perspective, it was siloed. And at that time, the policy directive was we really need to think about integrating physical health and mental health, right? And there was a lot of things in between. I think it's hard to say from a data perspective, right? My my uh, view of the world is often shaped by what I see in the data. So it's hard to really see, see you know, in recent years, you know, are we more integrated and less siloed? Not necessarily, but I think what we do see in the data is that there are clear signals and trends where behavioral health is changing um, how Americans access care, which inherently has implications for how they access all their health care, and then also how we are delivering care. And so inherently that is manifesting in, you know, downstream questions of our patients you know, engaging in primary care the same or different way than behavioral health care. So it's not a direct answer to your question because I think it's still too early to tell. I think there are a lot of opportunities that I kind of see from the data we're going forward. I can see that inevitably behavioral health is going to have a very, it, it already is 
but will have an increasing effect on physical health. And we're starting to see those connectivities. So inherently it will come together, but be hard to say, you know, as of today, you know, how siloed is it? It depends on what vantage point you're looking at it from. Yeah, no, no, I think that's definitely fair enough. But I think you also raised an important point that you are starting to see data around, I think you framed as access and delivery, um, which are probably two of the primary issues that you'd want to tackle. So maybe we can, if we can, can break those apart a little bit and take them separately, unless you think it makes more sense to to intertwine them because I suspect they're, you know, some of the pieces are intertwined and you can't necessarily tease it apart. But if we're talking about access, you know, historically, what did that look like? And what are you, you know, from the data that you've seen so far, how are you seeing that start to evolve? So I would say generally what the data shows, both in terms of analyses that my team and I have done and both what, you know, uh, CDC and others have done across um, the literature is that behavioral health care in America has always been, whether it's pre-pandemic or post, we've always had a little bit of a gap between diagnoses and treatment, right? There is always more Americans out there with a behavioral health condition than are able to actually get diagnosed, right? And there are multiple reasons for that. And that's really not, you know, or probably we want to focus today, right? Whether it's stigma, whether it's access to care, whether it's cultural barriers, you know, you name it. There's a lot of, we're probably under-diagnosing a lot of behavioral health that we have in this country today. So that part kind of remains true today. Among the cohort of patients who do have a diagnosis, we see once again discrepancy, and there's always a fewer, fewer number of patients who are actually receiving treatment for that diagnosis, right? And that the pandemic just kind of exacerbated that trend, that phenomenon hasn't changed. What we saw kind of pre-pandemic from an access point of view, at least from a care setting perspective, is it was no surprise, um, kind of well-established, I should say rather, that you know the emergency department was a common setting of care in which we would see a lot of behavioral health um, patients come in, whether that was for substance abuse or other disorders. Um, and a lot of that was attributed to the Medicaid population, right? Just given the nature of kind of the of what we're used to behaviors there. A lot of it was also occurring in in-office behavioral health provider offices, right? Like you go see your psychiatrist or a specialist if you know your child had autism, or sorry, not autism, ADHD. Um, so those were a lot of kind of the typical, I guess, ways or kind of care settings in which patients. Uh, would access behavioral health. That reality is a little bit different today, um, but that's probably, that was the starting point going into the pandemic. So I think that's a great point to now answer that kind of hanging question you left, which is what does access look like post-pandemic and how have the settings where care is being accessed shifted through that experience? Right. So um, some of the recent research that my team and I did was exactly with that question in mind, right? So what has change now over the last uh, couple of years and months. And so what we've seen is that there has been a little bit of a shift in the care settings that Americans are going to for behavioral health conditions and care. And most notably, we've seen a slight drop in emergency department volumes, which is interesting given that we also saw during the pandemic significant growth in the Medicaid program, right? And so you might superficially at least hypothesize that, well, if Medicaid has historically been the driver of behavioral health 
inflated volumes in the ED, if we're going to see you know, growth in that program, more Medicaid beneficiaries, maybe ED volumes would actually go up. They actually went down slightly. We saw a notable shift, of course, with telehealth, right? The, the one thing that the pandemic really changed was access to virtual care and telehealth as a care modality. And so by and large, you know, uh, the use of telehealth for behavioral health care really is what saw the greatest change across all care settings from, you know, nearly 45 times more, you know, because of the pandemic. So do did other care settings have an impact? For sure, right? Because now with virtual care as a very popular modality, then in-person behavioral health specialty care, right, in-office went down a little bit, right? So we saw a little bit of a redistribution of care settings in which telehealth really was the um, most popular setting today, which was something that just was not true before the pandemic. Yeah, and, and I feel like I've always often seen kind of that data that that with telehealth, especially for behavioral health and mental health, that saw the greatest increase in utilization. And that's also seen the greatest sustained use um, kind of as the pandemic has progressed. And you know, we're starting to get to this phase where maybe we're, I don't know if it's mid-pandemic, post-pandemic, kind of how to frame it. But you know, is that supporting the data that you've seen so far as well, that there is this, you know, I guess, compared to call it physical medicine, it's still that big gap in terms of, you know, how services are being accessed and have you seen that kind of sustain? Absolutely. So separately, when we just look at telehealth use, to your point broadly, um, even beyond behavioral health, at the peak of the pandemic, right, we saw that, you know, go up and then it started to taper down. What we see in the data is that the majority of telehealth volumes today, the kind of sustained use, as you call it, really is behavioral health care. And so to put that in more of a patient level perspective, right, we looked at data of number of telehealth visits you know, across the American population. As a benchmark, you could think about it during the pandemic, about a quarter of Americans use telehealth at least once in kind of 2020 and or 2021. Of that percentage, half of them used it one time, right? And those that used it one time used it for kind of a COVID-related, you know, thing. The rest of the utilization is pretty much all behavioral health, right? And that's where you see a lot of your super utilizers where you have individuals using it for multiple visits, which makes sense, you know, if you're using it for therapy. From an economic perspective, right, it also checks out, right? So you think about in health economics, substitute versus complementary goods and things like that. When you look at the behavioral health from a clinical substitute perspective compared to, say, primary care, is there are, there are no ancillary services, right? So if I go see my primary care doctor virtually, the they're more likely to, you know, you ask your questions, but they can't touch you, right? They can't run labs, blood work on you. They can't, you know, uh, take imaging. And that's usually something that could happen in the same interaction in an in-person interaction. So even though payment parity, if you look at the economics of it, right? Like you could be paying a, a greater rate for a virtual care interaction, but the, the net sum visit of that care interaction 
still tends to be reimbursed higher in the in-person setting for non-behavioral healthcare services because of those ancillary services. In behavioral health, you rarely have those ancillary services, right? So economically, you're really kind of getting that same parity if a psychiatrist sees you in their office or they see you virtually. And then from a clinical perspective, there is a lot of literature that suggests that patients actually might prefer it because because of that stigma and the sensitivity of the, the types of things you might be talking to your behavioral health provider about, you might actually want to have some distance, right, with the screen, right? You don't want to be vulnerable in person with somebody, but in non-behavioral healthcare clinical settings, you actually want to be touched and feel like you're being sussed out. So you're correct. The data supports that behavioral health really is the best use case for telehealth when you look at it from a clinical and economic perspective. Yeah, kind of breaking into those two components is very interesting. And for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Sandal Jane of Trillient Health. We're talking about behavioral health and evolution pre and post pandemic. And you know, kind of picking up on the economic uh, point that you were just making, Sandal, about you know that when you look at behavioral health, there really is more parity. I guess, do you think that gets sufficient attention or, you know, is that something that could arguably then be used to, to potentially try to roll it back because they're saying, well, well, you know, it's still costing the same. So why not go back to how it was? Well, I think to your first point, no, there isn't sufficient attention to it. And I think that goes once again, back to where we started about looking at it from a siloed perspective, right? So most people say, well, yeah, the rates went up. And so it is parity. But what does parity actually mean? And you have to really look at the entire care pathway, the care journey. And that's when you really start peeling back those layers. And you think about from the provider's point of view, right, how they are reimbursed and their economic incentives. You have to look about all the things they can bill for in a typical interaction, not just that, you know, one code, right? And we tend to make this mistake in healthcare of, okay, well, the policy did this, and we're looking at that one thing. Well, we didn't actually look at what that one thing does to the whole care interaction. So for that reason, I don't think enough of us are talking about what does parity actually mean, right, in practice, right? There's almost like the theoretical, and well, what does it mean in practice? To what that might mean going forward, well, I think there's a lot of conversation happening in the industry today about we still don't have enough data about clinical effectiveness and like from a quality perspective, right? So sure, there are signs kind of like we talked about that suggest that, you know, behavioral healthcare use cases for telehealth are probably just as good in terms of health outcomes, you know, virtually versus in person. I think there's still a lot more literature that needs to be published to, you know, fully validate that, but it seems more plausible in that case than maybe saying, you know, for treating a skin infection or, you know, a primary care uh, visit. And so I think the question will come back to supply and demand, right? To, you know, the, the help uh, economist thinking is if, well, the reality is, is that demand outpaces supply today. And so will future parity payment discussions be around how to provide more supply to create that access to meet that demand? If in that vein, if I'm looking at it, at it from that lens, it should should suggest that, well, maybe keeping the parity makes sense, right? So I think it kind of depends on what problem we're trying to solve and, and what we're trying to look at um, versus if the quality outcomes come back differently for non-behavioral health use cases or 
it is creating some other downstream effects that we that we're not talking about that could change how we think about you know virtual care reimbursement. So that's a I think to truly answer a question, we'd probably have to have a whole hour just on that and unpacking all the nuances. I don't think it's a it's one it's a one size fit all approach, but generally speaking, from what we know in the data today, behavioral health is a is an excellent kind of use case for virtual care and you know, given that there are the economics of it generally makes sense and we do have a supply demand mismatch, it should suggest that, you know, maybe keeping that parity uh, should actually help more than it, you know, potentially hurts. Yeah, and picking up on that supply demand uh, paradigm that you were just talking about, you know, how has that the rise and prominence of, you know, virtual telehealth options help to address that because it you know and i don't know if this was part of the the data you're analyzing or not but it you know there was frequently or or at least commonly stated anecdotally that pre-pandemic and probably still now finding a behavioral health clinician is extremely difficult but that that you know the virtual options have helped to remove some of those barriers because you're not reliant on someone being within arguable driving distance Mm-hmm. So you're right. the The lack of supply or necessary supply was generally an issue even before the pandemic. And my frame of reference is that the pandemic, by and large, just accelerated or amplified a lot of things that were true before the pandemic, right? And so behavioral health was an example of this. So we we saw more of that exacerbation in recent years. The thing is, is that in parallel, we also saw demand increase, right? Which makes sense. So when you start looking at not only, yes, we had, you know, growth in options and virtual care and all of that, we also saw more Americans have behavioral health conditions, right? And a lot of that was directly attributed to the pandemic. They were anxiety, depression, stress-related adjustment disorders, where when you go through a you know, maybe hopefully a once in a lifetime pandemic, like that's kind of human nature, right? We we made people fundamentally change their lives and, you know, lack social connection and, you know, work from home. And we, right, we did a lot of things to both children and adults and that had downstream implications. So we see that on the demand side of the equation as well. So did virtual care help? Absolutely, it provided a little bit of that access, but do we still have, a gap, yes, because we still have uh, growing demand and there are policy proposals on the table that suggest we might see more demand if we do if we um, make screening more widespread going forward. The thing that no one really is talking about, though, is within that new, I'm going to call it new supply, because to really quantify like, and, and the recent study that we did did not go to this level of depth. That's some work we're doing in a follow-up, right? To truly quantify the degree of mismatch between supply and demand, what we would need to do is actually clinically look at scope of practice, right? So what are the patient needs down to a zip code level that only a psychiatrist can treat versus you know, a nurse practitioner versus, you know, a behavioral health therapist, right? Like when you get to that level of granularity, the supply demand needs will look a little bit different, right? So I'm kind of extracting this to more of a macro trend. When you look at the new supply, right? the The new supply options provided primarily by virtual care and these new entrants, 
What's interesting to note is that a lot of that new supply is, once again, not in behavioral health specialists, it's other care providers. And so what you see, and this is a notable kind of change that we've seen in how patients are being treated for behavioral health conditions, is that a lot of the care rendered virtually is coming from primary care providers for for behavioral health conditions, whether that's a nurse practitioner, a PA, that's been a lot of the type of provider rendering care. So so said differently, it's not like all of a sudden because we have more virtual care options that we have more psychiatrists, right? We still have a a shortage of psychiatrists. And, you know, we have some data in our study that talks about the average age of psychiatrists and how they're generally an aging workforce. And so, right, we're going to see more of that strain on um, going forward in the behavioral health economy. So to really think about a a tactical solution, we really have to start mapping, okay, so it's actually a conceptual question and I'm not a clinician, but who are the best provider types to treat anxiety? Who are the best provider types to treat depression versus ADHD or substance abuse disorder, right? The answers to those questions would also change what our supply needs are. And to your one of your earlier questions about care integration, right? Like I think that's a that's a big question we have to answer as a society, right? Like to what extent does behavioral health care need to be integrated in primary care? Have we trained our primary care workforce to effectively diagnose and treat behavioral health conditions? Or is it for select conditions? Or is it just for diagnosis and not treatment, right? So there are a lot of these clinical questions we really haven't started unpacking. And until we do that, we're not really going to have a true, pic- like a very detailed picture of exactly what we need on the supply side to meet that growing demand. Yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of nuances in what you just covered, but it seems like one of the more important ones is the fact that, as you said, just because there's been this increase in access the access, I think, as you said, hasn't necessarily been to behavioral health specialists. It might be to general primary care or, you know, some other group that's being set up to, you know, help with the services, which probably goes into a question of what type of care is actually being rendered in those instances. And is it the right type of care that the that the patient or the individual, you know, optimally should be getting at that point in time? Or is it they're just being kind of pushed to receive the types of services that the company that's set up that availability wants to be pushing out? Mm-hmm. Um, so that basically tees up the next, I would say, big macro trend that we've seen of what's changed now. So we talked about access, now thinking a little bit more about treatment and care delivery. We've seen that the that across all age groups, the rate of Americans on meant like behavioral health related prescriptions has been on the rise, right? And that is increasing. So I will share my personal hypothesis, right? Going into the study um, was that I thought, oh, well, you know, more virtual care, more telehealth, maybe that's going to lead to more therapy, right? You can get, have more of those visits. That didn't actually play out in the data. What we did see was more medication. And you saw that not only by more age groups, right, but we saw um, in some conditions. So we we looked at um, in this particular study, um, ADHD is a great example, right? So you'll see that across the American population, 
there are more prescriptions for Adderall than there are diagnoses of patients with ADHD. Now you can, there could be many reasons for that, right? But just taking some of these points that we've seen prescribing go up, a lot of that prescribing is being rendered by primary care. You start, you know, asking these questions of what does that mean going forward? When you look at stimulant prescribing, for example, right, like as a whole category, so beyond just Adderall, we saw that pre-pandemic, so in that 2017-2018 timeframe, of all stimulant prescriptions, you know, it was like less than 1% were being rendered via telehealth. Today, that number is close to 40%, right? Now, some of that is probably warranted and needed in terms of promoting access. Some of that may be not warranted, right? And I, as once again, not as a clinician, that's I can't in a past judgment on that from the data that I have access to. But these are notable shifts in the care delivery patterns that we're seeing. And it's worth paying attention to to really start asking the questions, is this the right way we want to be treating and managing behavioral health conditions in this country? Are there adjustments we need to make? And if so, what does that look like? Believe it or not, we are already out of time. I want to thank my guest, Sandal Jane, for a great conversation today. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag H-C-D-E-J-U-R-E. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. 